0: Hey everyone, before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to remind you that we have a ton of extra content over on our Patreon. We do movie watch parties, special Patreon bonus episodes, and all other sorts of wacky stuff that you can access easily if you head on over to patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. In 1940, director and star Sir Charles Spencer Chaplin
1: gave the world a farcical look at the world's deadliest fascist in 2023 we run it back with a scottish distillery the film is the great dictator the whiskey is tamdu 15 and we'll review them both this is the The film and 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 whiskey podcast Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. Einste Funker Banana. (laughs) I believe that's German for I'm Brad G. (laughs) That is actually. (laughs) And this week we are looking at the 1940 Charlie Chaplin comedy, The Great Dictator. Now, if this is your first episode joining us, uh, it's going to be a wild ride, folks, because we're talking about some weird (laughs) stuff today. But also... I want to set the stage a little bit. We are in the middle of a mini series of films by director Charlie Chaplin, and we're kind of going a bit out of order here. So we have four films on the docket. This is movie number three, but it is definitely the latest movie chronologically, and it's by far the outlier among these four films because it's the only one that's a sound film. Chaplin did not move into making sound pictures until 13 years after the premiere of The Jazz Singer, which is regarded as the first talkie. And you can tell you kind of can, man. I'm I'm interested to talk about this movie because (laughs) I think that Chaplin has purpose behind why he uses or doesn't use sound. But it's also really interesting to see someone who is such a master at one medium. Try his hand at another one in a way that he hasn't done before, because (laughs) I feel like now, Brad. We can kind of I can compare him. We can evaluate. Yes, we can evaluate him against other things from this era.
0: Yes, I've and, watched
1: *Double Indemnity*. Yes, I've watched the
0: like uh, I've watched *Casablanca*. Like I've seen films from the '40s that have sound.
1: Yep. <laughs> and you're right. I think that there are instances where it's like, oh, Chaplin didn't quite know what he was doing here, and it's it's kind of endearing. It's all. It also makes for I would say. Of the four films, and you haven't seen the fourth one yet, I think this is the worst of the four. I still think it's a damn good movie. So I'm excited to talk about it with you.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm pumped for it as well. This one definitely feels like the outlier. Hmm. And I, I think that there's certain elements that don't stick as well because he is in sound. And yet there's other aspects of this film that you can tell having sound as a tool
1: he does a better job mm-hmm. in, in certain facets. And so, I, yeah, I'm excited to get into it, man. All right, Brad, I guess the place to start, but even before we get into Brad Explains, is just to kind of get your first impressions here. Like, this is obviously your first time seeing this movie, and you talk about how it's the outlier among the three that you've seen so far. I think the thing for me, Brad, is that the introduction of sound means that Chaplin now has to write really witty dialogue and... As the movie went on, I was noticing more and more how this reminded me of like a Marx Brothers movie. I don't know if you've ever watched a Marx Brothers film, Brad, but they really relish their one liners. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like like one of the famous Groucho Marx lines is when he says, uh, one morning I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he got in my pajamas, I'll never know. Like, it's just that that's a one liner. (laughs) That's a Marx Brothers. And there's a ton of that in The Great Dictator. But it's interesting because I feel like this movie has a completely different style of comedy from the silent chaplin films to the point where it, it's hard to even draw comparisons between them.
0: Yeah, I, I think for me, about 80% of the humor in this film just didn't work. Ooh. Wow. Okay. I don't know. I don't know if that's like hot take of all hot takes, but the the whole dancing with the globe scene didn't work for me. A lot of the humor of Hitler didn't work for, or sorry, Hinkle adenoid Hinkle. Okay, I will say here's here's a bit of humor that did work for me. I love the names that he gave everyone. Oh my gosh, yeah, <laughs> the the bacterian country and
1: <laughs> yeah, big fan of all the names. Adenoid Hinkle. Uh, what what was Mussolini? No, I don't remember. But yeah, uh, like his 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 right hand man's name is garbage. And yes, <laughs> and the uh, the garing substitute is herring. And yeah, it's great. Mm-hmm. man. Yeah, it's incredible. So big fan of that. But as I was
0: saying, a lot of the humor doesn't work. The humor that does work are really small moments. Uh, the, the best of which reminded me of another film. And I'll think of it here in a second. But when he goes off, oh, it reminds me of Lost in Translation. <laughs> when he is like giving his speech to the, the typist. And he's he talks for a solid, like, 45 seconds, and she types, like, three letters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he says,
1: like, two words, and she types for a solid 30 <laughs> seconds. They do that a couple like, different times. Like, I think there's a moment where he's getting translated by somebody, and the same thing happens. Yeah. Yep, and it's incredible, and it made me think of Lost in Translation when,
0: you know, the the Japanese director talks for a solid two minutes of real time and the translator goes be more stern Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then
1: like that said he's like i i think he said more yeah i think for me brad there are moments where the humor in this movie is kind of sweet and almost childlike there are moments where the humor is very clever and it's it's like very witty and punny and almost not designed to make you laugh out loud, but more to chuckle at the cleverness, like the things like the names, you know, Benito Mussolini in this movie, you were just talking about him. The character's name is uh, Benzino Napoloni and <laughs> Mussolini went by the title of Il Duce. And in this movie, he goes by Dig a Ditchy and like things like they replace the word Fuhrer with fui And so there's like little moments like that that are just silly. And then there's like the complete slapstick chaos of like I said, a Marx Brothers movie to the point where they're getting in food fights. And I think if there is one criticism I can make of the humor in this movie, I think all three types of humor worked for me, Brad. But even I will admit that the humor doesn't feel consistent throughout this movie because it's Mm -hmm. not as if those three types of humor are woven throughout the movie. It feels very much like. Here's a scene where the humor is very sweet. Here's a scene where the humor is very clever. And then here's a very funny, silly sequence. And they feel kind of disjointed. Yeah, 100%. And I think that was the
0: frustrating part for me is that I never knew quite where Chaplin was going with a scene, whether it would be a serious scene or or a, a comedic one. And the humor just didn't always land. Mm-hmm. And and I know that Chaplin talked about that when he was making this movie, if he knew how truly horrific the Nazis were, he might not have even made the film because the comedy just doesn't land in light of the yeah. the horrifying nature of what the Nazis did in Germany and beyond. Yeah, And I, I think I could feel that. Like, not even knowing that quote, there were certain moments where, like, it almost felt like we were we were getting an early, early version of a Schindler's list. Mm. You know, when the, the troopers are knocking down the doors and, and pushing their way into
1: the homes like. I almost wanted to cry. Yeah. Like and that just. And to his credit, I mean, that scene is not played for laughs like the moments No, no of it's the, Of the Nazis, quote unquote Nazis in the Jewish ghetto are harrowing and especially because mm-hmm. you know Brad I think we're going to have to kind of set the stage a little bit here. I want to get to Brad explains but it's really important from the get-go to talk about the historical context of this movie. So it comes out in 1940. Uh very obviously the United States is not in World War II yet. In fact, during the production of this movie even Great Britain wasn't at war yet. And so mm-hmm. Chaplin is really going out on a limb here and we'll talk about why Uh, when he makes this movie to parody a world leader you know on the level of a hitler but also because you know we didn't find out the world didn't find out about the horrific nature of concentration camps or the extent to which they had become death camps until after the war Mm -hmm. and this this very harrowing documentary footage comes home and so Chaplin is doing his best from what the rest of the world knew about what was being done to the Jews at this point, you know, and and obviously we had had knocked at this point. And so it was even worse than Chaplin knew at this point. But watching mm-hmm. it now over 80 years later, Brad, it it does create this kind of surreal sense of like almost like Inglorious Bastards where mm-hmm. it's a it's a an alternate reality of like what could have happened because the end of this movie and not to spoil too much of it, but. It really is a plea for peace and a plea for humanity to prevail uh, over barbarism. And it's now a very tragic and sad. What if because, yeah, this movie comes out and we're not even at war yet. And then we know how the next five years goes for the world. And it's like it's just really it's a really interesting artifact of cinema history.
0: Yeah, that that is the thing that is my biggest takeaway from this film. So, you're welcome. You can stop listening to the episode now. We'll, we'll say nothing else of value. Uh, but, like, when I look at this movie, I think that the year of release is the most fascinating fact about it. Yes.
1: And that's the thing. Like, is like you can't hold it against the movie either because this dude was, no. was really... He was he was taking a stand when no one else was taking a stand. And yep. the fact that we didn't know all of the details at the time can't be held against him because at least he was doing something
0: right. Yeah, no, I mean, he was on the leading edge of saying, hey, this Hitler dude kind of sucks and he is no good for the world. <laughs> and the the way he goes about it, I think the 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 way I appreciate the parody is that you have to be able to make fun of the evils of this world in such a way that that you understand the ridiculousness of evil mm-hmm. that that it asks us to do such ridiculous things yeah and it it can twist us into such farcical versions of humans that have such r- ridiculous demands and and i i think it's just this is one of the best iterations
1: of parody the world has ever seen. All right, with that out of the way, it is time for us to get into our first segment of the day, which we call Brad Explains. Brad's gonna give us the movie plot with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. We have set the stage... This is a movie parodying Hitler. If you haven't seen the movie, I don't know if I can effectively communicate to you just how much of a parody of Hitler this is. Like it is, yes. A he is like carbon copying the entire administration of Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini, and mm-hmm. just thumbing his nose at them from across the ocean. And it's it's pretty ballsy. And Brad's good. Was gonna... was, uh, was Mussolini's wife a little bit on the? Uh... You know I don't ro- know. robust side? I'm not, I'm not sure. That was an interesting uh, characterization, we'll say. <laughs> Brad, I'm going to give you 60 seconds on the clock to break down the actual plot of this movie. And go. A barber from Germany fights in World War I. He
0: loses his memory in a plane crash where he saves the life of a German uh, officer. And he wakes up in a new, sorry, not Germany, uh, to Tomania, Tomania. I apologize. Tomania, fake Germany. Uh, he awakes in a Tomania ruled by Adenoid Hinkle, the Hitler stand in who is doing his best to start a world war. The barber, on the other hand, falls in love with a local girl, tries to reopen his shop and is uh, harangued by the local stormtroopers of Hinkle's regime. He and the officer are reunited, sent to a prisoner of war camp, escape, and in the midst of escaping, Hinkle is out on a fishing trip and is taken to be the escaped barber. The escaped barber is taken to be Adenoid Hinkle, and he gives a speech
1: denouncing the evils of dictatorial rule. Boom. I think the only thing that is probably the most crucial piece of the whole thing that you you left out there, Brad, is that... They are lookalikes. This Jewish barber yes. is a doppelganger of the dictator Adenoid Hinkle. And yes. hijinks ensue as a result. Hmm. Not really till the very end, though. Yeah. You know what? That's one of the things that I took away this time around, Brad. I have not watched this movie. In fact, I may have only actually seen this movie once before this watch. I've, what? I've, I've watched the ending speech 20 times. I don't think I've actually like watched it front to back in probably 10 or 15 years. Yeah. And watching it this time, I forgot that not only do their paths not cross until the end of the movie, but unless you know where the movie is going and that there is going to be an eventual mix-up, you kind of don't really know where the movie's going. Like it's, yeah, I don't want to say it feels aimless, but they certainly aren't implying that there's going to be some sort of crazy mix-up here. You mm-hmm. can kind of guess it from the fact that chaplains playing dual roles but i don't really think that there's a sense of like forward momentum with these two storylines eventually crossing paths they just seem like very disparate and like and like they're not ever going to converge
0: no i i mean i'll tell you as a first time viewer i didn't expect them to converge at all Mm. like uh, like the fact that they looked alike was in my mind, not a result of the plot. It was a result of Chaplin just trying to highlight both characters. Mm -hmm. Like, I I did not find myself at a single point in the movie thinking that there was going to be a Shakespearean, you know, double identity mix up Mm -hmm. until like the very end when you're like, oh, they're going to get mixed up. But I'm with you, man. I think the weakest part of this film is how aimless it is. Like, uh, you said you wouldn't say that. I will say it. This movie is aimless and has no driving force behind it other than, hey, let's make fun of Hinkle and, like,
1: kind of show the plight of the Jews in the ghetto. And that's about it. And I think that, honestly, like, the individual scenes or sequences work really well as like self-contained parody sketches, but they go back and forth between Hinkle and the Jewish barber. And like I said, I mean, there's just no hint that those are going to intersect at any point. And there's some parts of the movie where Hinkle completely disappears from the picture. There's other parts of the movie where the Jewish barber completely disappears from the picture. And especially the last 40 minutes of the movie, Brad, which I think are by far the strongest part of the movie, like to the point where I have no complaints really about any of any of what happens in the last 40 minutes. Hinkle, the dictator, receives a visit from this Benito Mussolini stand in. It's really, really funny, like the train arriving in the station and then backing up and then moving forward. It's like it is straight three stooges. There's so much three stooges in this and. Then you get the actual mix up and you get this very rousing speech at the end of the movie. But they spend so much time going full silly and full slapstick with the Mussolini stuff that they don't Mm -hmm. even show the Jewish barber for like 30 minutes of the movie. And when he finally comes back in the picture, I legitimately having seen the movie and knowing where it was going was like, oh, yeah, this guy, I forgot about this character, (laughs) which is probably not something you want at the, you know. 90% 90% finished mark of your movie.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it was Chaplin's desire to parody Hitler that kind of sent the the movie off the rails a little bit as far as like moving towards a conclusion or if it was just his like first foray into sound that he didn't totally know how to wrap up a movie, but it definitely feels like something was keeping him from being able to,
1: keep this movie driving forward towards a satisfying conclusion. Brad, I have a feeling that I like this movie more than you do, and I'm not going to ask you to give, obviously, a final score at this point, but do you agree that individual scenes or sequences of the movie work really well, or was the whole movie, no matter how you kind of slice it, unsuccessful for you?
0: I would say the latter. Wow. Okay. I I think that there are individual scenes that work for me, but overall they never tie together in such a way that make the film. uh, Motivating that make the film enjoyable. Mm. Like at the end of the day, I think that this is a really important film. Like I, I think people should watch it. I think it's something that. Helps you understand the history of World War II. So I'm like, I'm in on this movie. I like it a lot.
1: But not because of the movie itself. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You know what is really funny about this is that I didn't know how you were going to react to Chaplin overall. And as I think back on how we structured this four episode miniseries, you know, we did kind of call an audible by not doing modern times immediately after City Lights, but. I don't even know if starting with City Lights was the way to go because you had such a great reaction to The Gold Rush, which is a much sillier film. And I, I wonder if City Lights might have had a bigger impression on you if we had started with The Gold Rush to kind of like ease you into the world of silent movies and then gone to City Lights. But by the time we got to this movie, I was thinking to myself, I really think Brad's going to like this because he's going to get all the references, obviously, like they're references to one of the most infamous people ever. Yeah, but it's a sound movie and the way the jokes are structured, the way the gags are structured is so similar to Mark's Brothers to Three Stooges to, you know, like you've said, Looney Tunes. The Looney Tunes were hugely influenced by this movie. And so I am really surprised that it was ultimately not successful for you.
0: Yeah, I I, I can't explain it other than to say that the jokes just continually fell flat Hmm. like there was a few jokes that worked and like. The very opening speech that uh, Hinkle gives was, like, pretty funny, but it went on a little bit too long. And the whole gag of him speaking nonsense gibberish German is funny in that first scene. And the rest of the film, it just feels forced. And I I I don't find it to be amusing unless they use it for effect like they do with the typewriter scene where – you know, he he talks a lot and a little is written and you know, the reverse. Like, that's pretty funny. But overall, just the, the jokes kind of just continually landed flat for me. I, I, I think the thing that kept me involved in the movie and interested was in the story it was telling about Jews in Germany. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, knowing that it was filmed in 38 and 39 and released in 40, there is a fascination for me to see what Chaplin knew about what was happening. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's like that's the story that was interesting to me. And the reason I was sucked into the film is because I know the history of World War II. Yeah. And and what was going on. And so that's that's what I found fascinating about it as a film. It's an incredible cultural artifact that we have.
1: I do want to kind of defend this movie a little bit because like I said, I don't think that it's the best of his films that we're watching, but I might fight for this movie harder than any of the four movies just because A, it is a really culturally important movie. But B, I really do think the humor works. And I think that it's one of those films that if you just want to enjoy the really dumb, silly moments, you can. But then there's a lot of moments that they get funnier the more you think about them and the more you think about the reason why he's doing it. So something like the gibberish German sound. He does it. You know, throughout the movie, where he's not really speaking German, but he mimics Hitler's kind of cadence with these made-up German words and throws in like a Wiener Schnitzel or whatever here and there. I do think it's really funny in the opening scene where he he really starts going in on the Jews, and you just keep hearing like De Juden, De Juden, and he's saying all these horrific things. And and the guy that's like announcing on the radio, all he says is, "Prime Minister Hinkle has just referred to the Jewish people." And then it goes on to the next thing. It's it's really mm-hmm. funny because, you know, he's saying something way more than that. But what I love about that extended gag is he only does it when he's really mad. And I think that Chaplin really smartly uses that to his advantage because what he's doing is he's making a commentary on the overall rhetoric of Hitler and that it only comes up when Hitler is at his angriest. But the things that he spouts when he's angry are, in fact, gibberish they are nonsense they are worthy of parody and i i love that that keeps coming up that he talks like a normal sane person until he flips a switch and then he becomes adolf hitler and adolf hitler is this object of derision brad i think i'm going to end up swearing more on this episode than i initially <laughs> intended to but i really feel very strongly about this movie and i feel very inspired by it and I think that there is something, man, I have a lot of, a lot of feelings. I'm trying to decide what to share and what not to share. Brad, what does it inspire you towards? I think that you and I come from a subculture, Brad, in Christianity, uh, American Christianity, where there has always been a bent to not ruffle feathers politically and i am we're not we're adv- also from the midwest right so. right that and that's also a cultural thing and i'm not a- i'm not advocating for people to just be belligerent but i think that there are very black and white things that happen in the world whether it's a 1940 or 2023 and that every once in a while i think that the ethically morally right thing to do is to stand up and say F- that guy and I love that Charlie Chaplin continually paints Hitler not just as a buffoon, not just as an object of derision, but actively sets him up as a way to say, "F this guy. Why am I going to do this? Because him. That's why. Like the Nazis (laughs) are. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I just, yeah, I like it when works of art have the purpose behind them of because him, and especially, (laughs) especially when. It is somebody as heinous and purely evil as Hitler. And I just think it inspires me, I mean, to swear a lot on this podcast, but also (laughs) to not take a back seat and not wait it out, which was the policy of America at this time.
0: Yeah, no. Yeah, there's there's so many people in America that were isolationist at this point that were saying, like, we got involved in the last one. And this is, you know, European problems. You know, we don't need to get involved here. I, th- I think that Chaplin is brilliant in what he does here. I, like, if you want to come at this movie from the cultural significance, you know, viewpoint, I'm 100% with you. Like, the fact that Chaplin had the balls to get up there and just completely rip him apart is beautiful. I'm just going to take on the role of a film critic here, yeah, Bob. Yeah, oh, for sure, for sure. Because somebody needs to do it, and I know I'm the true <laughs> film critic here. Of course. And say that the movie's just okay. Mm. Man. Man, I wish this worked for you more. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing, man. I Like, it works for me in certain ways. It's just not... I wish that he had made three other sound films before he made this. Yeah, I get that. I, I think that's the key thing for me, where I'm just like, bro, like, either don't direct this, ju- like, have a co-director or somebody... Or make other movies first. Like, I know he took a long time on his films, but at least make one other sound film before you take on, I don't know, parodying Adolf Hitler. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, see, and I just think that it works better than you do. And to complete the setting of the table here, historically, I do want to talk about, like, what Chaplin put on the line to make this movie. Because, you know, he is the most famous person on Earth throughout the 1920s. He makes City Lights. It's a big success. He makes Modern Times. It's a success. But like he has now become, isn't it cool that Charlie Chaplin is still making movies? You know what I mean? People respect it. People go see it. He's not the phenomenon that he once was. He has a boatload of money, but he still has his reputation to protect. And I feel like at some point, Brad, we will talk about Chaplin's kind of personal peccadilloes that He is always kind of trying to keep hidden so that his Mm -hmm. reputation can remain unblemished in the public eye. And yet here he is. He's making this movie. He does. He decides he's going to make a movie about Hitler for a myriad of reasons. Back in the early 1930s, he went to Berlin uh, to premiere. I think it was City Lights and he got mobbed by the people. And they they there was so much adoration and adulation that it actually pissed off the Nazis And so Mm. they started producing like a pamphlet or something about him where they kept calling him a like a Jewish comedian, even though he's not Jewish. They just wanted to paint him in a negative light. And so his history with the Nazis is well documented and he's ready to get back at them. Yeah. But at this time, even Great Britain is like, we're not going to show this movie. We will outright ban this movie from being shown in our country because they were under an appeasement policy. And so he kind of self-finances almost the entire budget of this movie. Roger Ebert says he put up $1.5 million of his own money, which in today's dollars would be about $32 million. He he spent $30 million or more of his own money, not knowing if he was ever going to make it back, not knowing if it was going to totally tank his career, because he felt like somebody had to say something. And damn it, Brad, I wish this movie worked better for you, because I <laughs> wanted to make that declarative statement of like, and it did. He did say something. Yeah, he did. A hundred percent. I, I, I'm gonna
0: keep saying it, Bob. I, I like the statement that he made. Yeah. Uh, although I think his final speech might be one of the saddest artifacts hmm. of this film for for a variety of reasons, and we can get into that after the break. But there, there's so much about this movie. That makes the historian in my soul go, oh, like this
1: is a fascinating thing. Well, Brad, I think maybe this is a good place to hit pause then. We'll come back after the break. We'll actually talk about the performances in the movie. We'll talk about that final scene. But before we get there, what do you say we try this Tamdu 15? After drinking the Tamdu 10, I am really excited for this. All right, let's get to it. All right, so today we are checking out Tamdu 15. Last week we tried Tamdu 10. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that review because we give a lot more background than we're probably going to give today, Brad. Tamdu is a Speyside distillery Mm. in Scotland. Speyside being one of the whiskey distilling regions of Scotland. Uh, We really liked Tamdu 10, Brad. It was a single malt. It was aged entirely in uh, sherry casks. I think that's the same thing we're getting this time around. Yes. Yeah, 100 percent. It is aged in sherry casks. Sherry is a uh,
0: fortified white wine made in Spain primarily.
1: And so you get a lot of grape flavor on this. Well, I am just now cracking my bottle, Brad. This comes in at 92 proof. As we said, aged 15 years. There is some beautiful color on this, Brad. The color is drastically darker than the 10 year was. Yep. Yeah, it is one of the more beautiful
0: colored scotches I've ever seen. A, a lot of times, Scotch can kind of come in a little lighter on the color palette, and this one has really beautiful, deep,
1: caramely amber uh, colors to it. All right, man. Let's just dive in. I think we've said enough. Like, there's there's not a ton more information to give here. I'm going to talk about the nose here, and this has one of the most potent, dark grape forward sherry noses i've ever tried brad yep it reminds me of the nomad outland that we have just in terms of the sheer decadence uh but it's a lot more like plummy than that like it really smells like plum like prune really 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 nice i will say that towards the very end of the nosing experience it kind of tipped into like a little bit of almost like a cherry robotussin for me um, and I hate when I think about Robitussin. Like I just have <laughs> scars for my childhood from that. But overall, a really great nose. I'm gonna give it a nine out of ten.
0: Yeah, I think that this is a really solid nose for me. The grapes came through very, very strong. There's some orange zest. The barley is present throughout. There's almost like a creamy cheesecakey feel to it. And the longer I sit with it, there's s- s- some notes of like an allspice coming through. I think it's really solid. I'm going to sit a little lower than you at an 8 out of 10.
1: All right, let's get into the taste, Brad. I just had my first sip of it. I really like this. I think it's entirely more complex, and it has a lot more of a punch to it than the 10-year did. You can hear my mouth watering over here. Oh, I try not to make lip-smacking sounds, but I can't help it today. <laughs> This is real prickly, and again, it reminds me of some Highland scotches we had in the way that the alcohol manifests. Like This drinks kind of like a Glenmorangie on the tongue, but way more grape, way more prune. Um, and honestly, I think that the Robitussin kind of comes back a little bit. Mm-hmm. It tips into being a little bit more medicinal and bitter towards the back end, kind of like a bitter cherry. Um, I don't know how to score this, Brad, because it's a really thick, pleasant mouthfeel that leads into some kind of slightly unpleasant bitter fruit notes. I think I'll give it a seven and a half, though.
0: Yeah, I, I actually like the taste here a lot. I give it an eight and a half out of ten. I think that for me, the the bitterness that you're talking about, for me, it was like a really strong tart flavor that reminded me of like some dried cranberries. There's some grape jam notes going on, like a really nice, thick grape jam uh there's some almonds nuttiness that hit me and then i i got a little bit of a vanilla but almost like a blondie do you know i'm talking about Mm. like the brownie dessert Mm -hmm. but you know vanilla instead of chocolate do i know what you're talking about come on i mean you know malone university had some killer blondies (laughs) am i right uh can i give a quick
1: aside Yeah, uh, 100%. One time I went to get blondies at Applebee's with a friend of mine. It was a late night blondie Mm -hmm. run. And uh, apparently they had a mix up in the back that we did not know about because the maple butter sauce that comes with the blondie at Applebee's was directly next to the Philly cheesesteak cheese sauce. (laughs) And so we poured out the sauce and took a bite of our blondie's. And it was covered in Philly cheesesteak cheese. It was freaking gross. I can't imagine anything going wrong with, with that experience. <laughs> sounds delicious. You've never lived until you've had vanilla ice cream topped you know with what? Philly cheese. Yeah, that sounds like one of the greatest
0: experiences you probably could have had at Applebee's because you went to Applebee's. <laughs> so exactly. I, this, this sounds like it's your false, Bob. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So did you give a score on the finish? Uh, the finish? No, I the finish for me was like a seven and a half finished with some like nuttiness, a lot of grape coming through, gets a little bit oaky. The barley is present.
1: It was a fine finish. Nothing to write home about. Yeah, I think the finish is actually a pretty significant drop off in terms of like the potency. It's really potent on the tongue, like on the palate, and I think pretty prickly. Like I'm surprised this is 92 proof. It drinks hotter than that and it drinks more robust than that. But on the finish, like I will say to its credit, it doesn't have that sort of robotny aftertaste, but it it just kind of dissipates. There's not a lot there. I will still give it a seven on the finish.
0: Yeah, and then on the balance, I gave this an eight out of ten. I think it's a really solid expression. It doesn't quite reach the heights that the Tamdu
1: 10 did for me, and I'm a little bit disappointed there. I'm going to give this a 7 on balance. I actually like this whiskey a lot better than I liked the Tamdu 10. I just think there's a lot more going on here, and I like that it is so potent and robust. But there is a marked drop-off from nose to taste to finish, and that kind of sucks. So like, even though I like the flavor profile here a little bit better, actually a lot better than Tamdu 10, It's not as well balanced. So it's a seven for me. And that takes us to value. Now, Brad, I believe this is no longer sold in the state of Ohio because I got it on one of our last call runs. Mm -hmm. But looking online, there are some areas where it seems to be really marked up. But I see it listed on Total Wines website at $129.99. So we're talking about a $130 bottle of whiskey. This is right in line with what we would see from something like a Glenmorangie 18. The only thing is, this is three years younger than that. So, yeah. I think this is overpriced, Brad. Yeah, I
0: think at $130, I would give it like a four and a half on value. Mm. Like, I think it's about 40 to $50 too expensive. Like, I, I think this is a $70 whiskey that maybe $80 whiskey that's $130. And that's just... That's hard for me to swallow, man. I-, I don't know if I could recommend that to many people.
1: I told—I always tell myself that I'm going to do this, and I never remember to. But like, when I'm editing our episodes, and I hear you say something like, oh, this is a $50 whiskey, but it's actually like a $120 whiskey. Mm-hmm. I just want to make sure that everyone understands what you mean when you say that. Because my understanding is that you're just going based solely on The drinking experience you had. And like if someone placed this in front of you blind and then said, how much would you pay for a bottle of that? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. It is kind of absent sometimes of the context of like, oh, they finished this in the most rare barrel on earth that was only used one time. And, you know, like I, I think that you take that out of the equation and you're kind of just evaluating how much would I pay for this based on how good the juice was.
0: Yeah, the, the way you're saying it doesn't sound complimentary, but I'm taking it as a compliment. Uh, no,
1: no, no. I like. I don't mean the... it. <laughs> and I think it's good that you and I evaluate stuff differently sometimes. Like, yeah. Because I'll even say stuff like, hey, I understand why this is priced at $130. I just don't like it. Does that mm-hmm. make it a bad value? And that makes it harder for me to evaluate whether it's a good value because it seems like a competitive price in the marketplace for the amount of labor that went into it. This one... I can say pretty definitively, I think, is overpriced. Like, they're not really using any sort of special barrels to finish this in. I know that it's aged 15 years, but you look at something like a Glenmore in G18, that is uh, about in line with this, and you get three more years of aging. So, yeah, I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10 on value. I don't think it's a horrible value, but there's definitely better whiskeys you can get for this price or cheaper. So, Brad, I am coming out to a 36.5 out of 50. What are you coming out to? <laughs> Bro, I feel like we were like wildly different throughout this entire experience. And yet here I am at a 36.5 out of 50. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. So we're at a 73 out of 100 or an average of get this, 36.5 out of 50. Ooh, that math. You got it, man. This is kind of just clearing the bar for us to start recommending it. I do think it's a worthwhile drinking experience. I don't know if I'd recommend buying a bottle, but like there's nothing wrong with this. I would never recommend someone not try it.
0: Yeah, I think it's 100% worth a pour, even if that pour was like eight to ten dollars. I think it'd be worth it. But to buy a bottle, like maybe go in on it with a friend or two to try it out. But. I don't know if I could recommend a whole bottle of it,
1: Bob, other than the fact that their bottles are freaking gorgeous. It is a very, very lovely looking bottle. Very attractive. Brad, I feel like this whole episode is just like a slight letdown for you. Yeah, and it's your fault, as always. As always. All right, man, let's get back into talking about The Great Dictator. What do you say? Let's get to it.
0: All right, everybody, that was Tamdu 15, a whiskey that Bob and I had wildly different experiences with and yet somehow came out to the same score,
1: which I'm hoping is the case with our final scores on this movie. But uh, I feel like I might be hoping against hope here, Brad. Yeah. I mean, do you want me to, to ruin your life now or later? I'm oh, happy always to- li- Always later. Let me enjoy these okay. last few moments before you pull <laughs> the rug out.
0: Well, in order to extend your hope a little longer, I think we need to turn to Canada's favorite segment, Two Facts and a Falsehood.
1: Brad is going to try to stump you
0: ball, to are right, and what is wrong. Facts and a falsehood.
1: two facts and a falsehood is the part of the podcast where brad presents three items to me as fact about the making of this movie one of which he has totally made up and it's my job to figure out which one is the lie i am currently one game under 500 on this season brad i'm at five and six mm. i am hoping that i can get back into the good graces of film and whiskey nation by pulling Ethan again uh, I'm not super optimistic, though. That That's assuming that Film and Whiskey Nation wants you to win. <laughs> I think they I... at least want it to be competitive, you know? Like, I think the goal <laughs> for them is a 500 season. That maybe.
0: I mean, in the baseball world, that, you know, could get you into the playoffs. I think if the Brown, whenever the Browns are five and six, it's at a point where I'm like, yeah, the season's over. We're going we're to end up like 5 and 11.
1: I guess I'm just hoping that they <laughs> root for us both equally so that neither one of us comes out too far ahead of the other. Yeah, no, I don't hope for that. At yeah, all. I, I want know. them to root right, for me. Right, you know what? <laughs> Tell me your two facts and a falsehood. Let's get this over facts with. Facts number one. Chaplin said that
0: wearing Hinkle's costume made him feel more aggressive, and those close to him remember him being more difficult to work with on the days he was shooting as that character. Hmm. Fact number two, Maurice Moskowicz, who played Mr. Jekyll, was a Jewish immigrant from Poland who, upon hearing of Chaplin's intent to make the film, begged him for a role in the movie, hoping for an opportunity in the shaming of Hitler for his abuse of the Jewish people. Fact number three, production on the film started in 1937, when not nearly as many people believed Nazism was a menace, as was the case when it was released in 1940. However, the film was ultimately upstaged as the first anti Nazi film satire by the Three Stooges mm-hmm. production of You Nazi Spy, which
1: also was released in 1940, nine months earlier. Number three is true. I know that for a fact because I perused the Wikipedia article. Uh and I wanted to talk about the Three Stooges at some point. So thank you for making sure we hit that, that mark, Brad. You're welcome. Number two sounds like that could be something that really happened. Uh, I really liked that guy's performance in the movie. It was really good. Uh, He's and is the, be- the best performance in the movie, Bob. I like to think that he begged Chaplin for a role so that he could stick it to the men. And because of that, I think I'm just going to pretty easily settle on number one as the falsehood. I don't know if it is, but I like the narrative that I'm constructing here. So number one is false. I like the narrative
0: that I constructed in number two being the false. Damn
1: it. (laughs) You did. You constructed the best narrative. Why would you do that to me? 100% did. (laughs) Uh, And I'm sad. All right. I'm at five and seven on the year. Man, this sucks. (laughs) It's, It's like a true. Cleveland Browns football season. <laughs> it's like we just received our first visit from Pittsburgh, you know, when like yep. the season's still hanging in the balance and you've just got to either beat the Ravens or the Steelers. And, and then they just wallow. They you. just accelerate the the downslide. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Oh man. Let's talk about the performances in this movie. So This movie is nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture. It's nominated for Best Actor for Charlie Chaplin. I think it is very well deserved for playing two roles, both of them very convincingly. Uh, It's also nominated for Best Supporting Actor for the guy that plays Mussolini, who is he literally he comes in for the last 30 minutes of the movie and just drains eight threes in a row like he is the (laughs) Duncan Robinson of this movie, and he's freaking great. But it sounds like, Brad, you think that there is somebody else in the cast that's even better than both of them.
0: Yeah. First off, Jack Oakey as Napoloni, the dictator of bacteria. <laughs> can, can we just... He didn't even, like, try to make a play on words with Italy or anything. No. <laughs> he just, just, just called them bacteria. <laughs> Do you know why? Well, uh, No, I don't. Because... F- them that's why it's yeah.
1: great
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know you're right italy doesn't get enough shame for its part in yeah, World forget War II. i don't care if they gave us pasta and <laughs> shit. like forget you do you here, Here's here's a real question do you think that italy gets a pass in america's mindset because they gave us pasta pizza and wine
1: I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> let's let's move forward. What you're asking me is, do carbs cover a multitude of sins? And I don't I don't know how to answer that. Uh, Maurice Moskovich
0: as Mr. Jekyll, incredible. Yeah, from he's actually from uh, the Russian Federation at the time. Hmm. Uh, he's from Ukraine. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, he's a Ukrainian guy. He was incredible. I he just had the gravitas that you
1: need for a movie about the ghetto in World War II hundred mm-hmm. percent. And again, like I think that it is worth noting that Chaplin very specifically picks people to be in this movie to fill and I don't want to say certain roles. but like that guy's not gonna be telling jokes. You know what I mean? Like he is there yeah. to be the tragic side of the film that makes you think about what's actually happening in the real world. And he does such a good job of filling out those roles that I think it helps to make the comedic roles even better. Do you know what I mean? Like if if Chaplin wanted that guy to take a pratfall, it would just undermine the whole movie. And I think he's he's already kind of trying to build a house of cards. And however successful or unsuccessful you think it is, Brad, I think we can both agree it would have been way more unsuccessful if they tried to make that guy be a comedian.
0: Yes, 100 percent. I, I think everybody else in the film has their comedic moments. Even, you know, Hannah, the the girl that he falls in love with. Played by his wife at the time, Paulette Goddard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's an interesting thing we could probably talk about. Absolutely, we can. Everybody has their comedic moments except for him. And I think it works. Uh, I think that Henry D- Danielle, Daniil,
1: who plays Garbage. Oh, he was my favorite part of the movie. He was so good he, as, as he Hitler's was right hand man. Yeah. Can I tell you who he reminds me of? Who's that? I
0: thought that he looks wise and the way he talks reminded me of Ray Fiennes from Schindler's List. Oh, interesting. Wow. Like there's it. just something about the way he looks and and talks that is slow and menacing. And here it is very comedic and played for comedy, but
1: there's something about it that I was like, "Oh, Ray Fiennes." Yeah, I love that. Good comparison, man. Yeah, thank you. That's what I'm here for. What do you think of Chaplin in this movie? You've watched him as the Tramp in two movies now, and the Jewish barber. There's been a, a very long-standing debate on if this is in fact his last kind of iteration of the Tramp. He always mm-hmm. said, "Like it's not really the Tramp, but it allowed me to play." silently in a lot of ways because yeah. the opposite of that is screaming at people and that's what i did as hitler yeah i love that they. Yeah. I, I love that they do kind of like modify he's clearly wearing like a riff on the tramp's costume in a couple scenes but it's like the clothes are much nicer they're not quite as tight or as baggy as they are with the actual mm-hmm. tramp so i don't know man like what first of all do you see this as a tramp character and then secondly overall, what did you think of Chaplin in this movie? I mean, I think that if you look at the Tramp as a character who evolves over time,
0: this feels like the final evolution of the Tramp. Mm. Like, he is mature in a lot of ways, he has a streak of white in his hair, he falls in love, and seemingly, like, does his, does his best to save her, even if it doesn't mean that he ends up with her, and that feels like an evolution for the Tramp, so, yeah, I... I 100% view this as a tramp character and and I've only seen two movies with the tramp in it. So I So you're the me, expert here. Yeah. I I am the expert here, obviously. I mean, Bob, nobody's watched
1: silent films. So, <laughs> come on. <laughs> You've watched two more silent films than the average person, Brad. Where do you think it puts me
0: in like the percentile of movie watchers? Of like people who have watched silent films. How many of the American public has watched a silent film? Ten percent. I'm gonna say ten percent. Ten? So I'm in the top ten, baby. Yeah,
1: you're you're doing let's, pretty good, man. Let's go. I'm at the tail end of the distribution. So Chaplin overall playing dual roles. What'd you think of him? Solid. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that as hit Hitler, as Hinkle,
0: Adenoid Hinkle, I think he does a really phenomenal job of portraying the ridiculousness of Hitler and the, the way he feminizes him in a lot of ways and the way he shows the change of moods, I think is where his parody lies supreme. Mm. And then as the barber, I, I think it's the moments where he's authentic, that he's at his best. There's definitely some moments where he's being ridiculous that it doesn't feel
1: real to the character or the story that's being told. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you, man. I, I think that what I really love about the Jewish barber character, and I, I also see it as a tramp. Like it, it doesn't have to be the little tramp to be a tramp, because the thing I love about the tramp character, and we talked about this with the gold rush, is he might be naive or he might be unaware of things, but he's not an idiot. And he learns valuable lessons a lot of times the hard way. And that's what makes us empathize with him. And boy, Mm -hmm. oh boy, does this guy learn lessons the hard way? It's, it's unfair. The, you know, Mariah Gates, when she was here a few weeks ago, talked a lot about how the tramp is always kind of the victim of systems that he has no role in building. Like he's just, he's always on the butt end of that. And this is obviously one of those moments, but. Just having him be a guy that was in a, a mental hospital for however many years and just now getting released and not knowing anything about the political climate of his country, not knowing that this dictator is in power, and then being genuinely naive and curious and not know how to salute and say, oh, hail Hinkle and whatever, I think that that's what makes it a tramp character. I really loved his performance here on both fronts. Brad, I do think we should touch on Paulette Goddard really quick. We're going to talk about mm-hmm. her next week because she's also the, the female lead of modern times, where I think she's even better than she is here. Paulette Goddard is a really interesting character or figure in Chaplin's life. They're married at this point. They had a longstanding affair. Her career kind of suffered a lot as a result of being associated with Chaplin, not because of, again, some of the things we will talk at a later date about Chaplin's personal life, but because he had his own studio, he his productions always ran for years and years, so she was always unavailable to do other movies. She was a finalist to play Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. It was between hmm. her and Vivian Lee. And She would have been a good Scarlett O'Hara. A lot of people think that the reason she didn't get that role is because of her association with Chaplin. Hmm. And I think that it's very telling, too, at the end of this movie, the way that the camera is framing her with the dirt on her face for just from slightly underneath and the lighting on her face. It is like an exact replica of that scene where Scarlett O'Hara stands up and says, as God is my witness, I'll never go hungry again. And I think that was yeah. Chaplin kind of getting back at Selznick for not casting her as Scarlett O'Hara. I think she's really good here, but I can't wait for you to see her in modern times. Yeah,
0: I know. I, I thought her performance was really wonderful. I think that what makes her so endearing is the fact that she doesn't even try to have any sort of accent. (laughs) And I I think that's something that I actually really liked about the whole film is that nobody tries to have an accent. Mm -hmm. And there's so many movies that we've talked about where people try to have accents and it just doesn't work that it's refreshing to see a movie where he's like, oh, you're from New York sure have a new york accent oh you're from you know uh from great britain sure have an english accent i don't
1: care like we're just making fun of everybody talk however you want to talk well and it it's, it works to comedic effect too like when he has the mussolini character just be mm-hmm. like a guy from the bronx yep he has like the offensive italian like I get off on a train. I walk in a, you know, hey, I walk at a red corner, But then he has a New York accent to go with it. It's great. Yes. <laughs> Did you catch the uh, the
0: Napoleon ice cream reference? Yes. <laughs> that they, dude. <laughs> like,
1: it's little things like that where I'm like, that was the 20% of humor that worked for me. Yeah. I do want to get into our last couple segments of the day. But before we get to that, let's talk really quickly about this closing speech. It has been clipped to death Uh, every so often. I see it making the rounds on like YouTube or Facebook or whatever. And like people don't know what movie it's from. They just know that it's a very rousing speech. I think that in the context of the movie, it's even more impactful. I like I'm going to be honest with you and say that I really did tear up the moment where it it cuts back to him. It cuts from like a medium shot back into a close up. And he starts talking about in the 17th chapter of Luke. It talks about uh, like the man is preaching. And it it got to me in my soul. And I just got to say, man, I don't know. How much of Chaplin's use of sound worked for you, but it says a lot about him that he's like, if I'm going to make a sound movie, then damn it, I'm going to give a five minute speech at the end of it, and it's going to be the best use of sound anyone's ever had. Yeah,
0: I I think that the speech is incredible and. It was fascinating reading Ebert's review of this. The speech did not work for him at all. Wow. Have you, have you ever read? Go look up his review of this. I think he wrote it in 2007. Okay. He, he like lambasted the speech. However, for me, what worked about the speech is that it is set up in a non-comedic way. That, that, you know, the the minister of propaganda gets up and gives a obviously propagandist speech. And then he basically says, like, it's up to you. You know, the, the guy that he's escaping with says, it's up to you. You have to give a speech now. And the speech that he gives is incredible. Once again, I'm going to come back at it from the lens of a historical artifact. It's fascinating to me. The humanist bent that you see in the speech Mm -hmm. like he 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 quotes scripture for a moment talks about the kingdom of God being in the hearts of all man which I'm I'm down with I'm like he's preaching there but it takes such a bent where he's essentially saying humans are able to make human life better Mm -hmm. and we just need to get rid of these evil leaders and these systems of power that are above us, and if if we would just unite as brothers, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. And A, he sounds very communistic there for a moment. Mm-hmm. And B, the reality of the situation is, Bob, humans will never raise themselves above the basic sins that have plagued us for thousands and thousands of years. And I think that's the sad part of the speech for me is that all throughout the 1900s and the you know the 19th century the 20th century we were just fooled by this enlightenment principle that humans can use science and progress to rise above the evils of the world and just br- usher in this utopia and you can see that chaplin is stuck in that idea and i just it just makes me sad for him Because that's not reality as we see it. And I honestly, I think as we move into the 21st century, I feel like the world is kind of swinging back to a place of recognizing that there's just evil in the world. And we don't always know how to handle it, but it definitely seems to be uh, above us in certain ways. And we have to look to something outside of ourselves to handle it.
1: Well, I think that whether you have an ideology similar to you and me, Brad, or whether someone has an ideology closer to Chaplin's, and again, part of the reason Chaplin has to flee America for 20 years is because he is accused of being a communist. And so it's really interesting to to watch this speech through the lens of that, because there's very obviously like, you know, uh, instead of saying like workers of the world unite, he says like soldiers in the name of democracy unite. But like, it's still... Has the cadence of very famous communist things. Yeah, a little, little hammer and sickle action going right. on here. And so it's like he tries to, like, sprinkle some democracy on there so that it can get, get past the people that it needs to get past. But, yeah, I, I mean, I see it the same way. I guess my point is whether you you have a more humanistic approach or a more theological approach like you and I do, I think the the tragedy of this speech is that now, in retrospect, it seems too idealistic it seems too pie mm-hmm. in the sky it seems naive and i think yeah, in the it's, moment it's Chaplin using whatever power and whatever sway he still has over the audiences of the world to say guys like let's come together in this moment this is like our last chance to do it before shit gets really bad not that yeah. shit hadn't gotten bad but like we we know now in in retrospect it got a lot worse and that people ignored him and so, yeah. again, that's where I think it's important for us to remember this comes out before any sort of, you know, allied involvement in World War II, when mm-hmm. he could still plausibly in his mind, try to turn public opinion and and keep the world away from war. And now we just see it as like, oh, wasn't that cute that Chaplin thought he could do that? Yeah. But I mean,
0: that's not what you said earlier, Bob. What did you say earlier about his attempt? I said it
1: was successful. Yeah. Yeah. No, I still think it. Listen, I still think that it is like if you think that you can change the world with words, if you think that you can inspire people to do something, this is one of the best speeches I've ever seen written. You know what I mean? Like, it's not it's not Chaplin's fault that no one listened to him. I Hmm. think it's a really successful, persuasive speech. That fell on ultimately deaf ears, you know. Yeah. And like, on that note, Brad, it's time for for our time last, to make it a double. Time for our last segment of the day. What's another movie that fell on deaf ears? This segment is called "Let's Make It a Double." We're near the end of the episode. So thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's struggling. It's, it's the, the final segment, segment of the day. Now let's make it a double. Let's make it a double is the part of the show where we. Pair this movie up with another to make a perfect double feature. Brad, I'm really curious because this movie didn't entirely work for you. Where what direction are you going here?
0: I'm gonna go with another movie that I liked but did not totally work for me. I'm gonna go with Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, I think it's a good call. Yeah, I like as I was watching this, I was like, yeah, it's a it's a reimagining of World War II.
1: There's aspects of it that didn't work, but ultimately it's a really fascinating movie. You know, I've been talking about the Marx Brothers a lot on this episode. I think that the one that I would pair this up with is their most famous movie, which is called Duck Soup, which is also, I mean, it's not directly parodying any country, but it has invented European countries and rulers and dictators. And I think it's a perfect pairing with Duck Soup. Anytime you get food fights and one liners, it's going to be a good double feature. So Brad's going with Tarantino. I'm going with the Marx Brothers. Brad, it's time for us to give this movie some final scores. Should I give it a positive score first or should you give it a negative score first? Uh, I mean, you know, negative would be like five
0: or under, mm. you know, if, if five is the halfway point. So I will go ahead and give it the
1: positive score of six and a half. Ooh, man, I'm just I'm just shocked that it didn't work for you. To the extent that it didn't work for you.
0: Yeah, it, it just wasn't funny. Yeah. Well, neither are and you. That, that... <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're not funny. <laughs> Fine, sure, whatever, Bob. <laughs> um, I'm going to give it an 8.5. And I gave The Gold Rush an 8.5. And I think it's one of those moments where it's like, I know I gave these movies the same score, but they're for very different reasons. This movie is mm-hmm. an 8.5 because... It is obviously more flawed than The Gold Rush, but it's kind of cool watching Chaplin try to figure out a new medium. And I also think that the things that he nails about this movie, he really, really nails. It's like, it really works for me. It's not as good as The Gold Rush, and I do think it of the four we're watching, it's the worst one. But it is more than worthwhile to watch this movie. Yeah, it is the worst one. <laughs> I really hope someone out there has seen The Great Dictator, because I'd like to know what people think of this one. If you want to let us know, you can find us on our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at Film Whiskey. Or jump onto the Discord. Tell Bob how wrong he
0: is on this take about The Great Dictator. You can find a link to our Discord at the end of every single
1: one of our show notes. Next week, we are rounding things out with Chaplin with what I think is his best movie. And I'm sure Brad will argue with me because that's just what we do here. We're watching 1936's Modern Times. So we'll see you for that one next week. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.